Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. The coronavirus pandemic and the police shooting of George Floyd have shown a harsh light on inequality in America. Black Americans suffered disproportionately in all areas of society, from healthcare and housing to education, employment opportunities, and political representation. All of us bear a responsibility in creating a more just society. How can we, as educators and parents, help Black children see themselves reflected more positively in the world around them? How can we provide educational opportunities for them that have been historically denied? And how can we help all children understand the ravages of racism? Today, I'll talk with Dr. Goldie Mohammed and Monique Melton. Goldie is an associate professor of language and literacy at Georgia State University. She's also the author of Cultivating Genius, an equity framework for culturally and historically responsive literature. Monique is an anti-racism educator, author, public speaker, and host of the Shine Bright Together podcast. They'll share ideas for parents and educators to start these urgent conversations at home and in the classroom. First, here's Goldie Muhammad. Hi, Goldie. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. We'd love to start by having you talk about your book, Cultivating Genius, and the four learning goals you propose. Cultivating Genius is a book that looks at Black historical excellence as a model, as a playbook, as a guidebook to better educate children today. I study... Black literary societies during the 19th century. These were some of the nation's first book clubs. And they came together as abolitionist thinkers to read, write, think, debate, build their knowledge and their understanding so that they can strategize and, and work toward creating a better world. And so I study Black literary societies, their mission, their purpose, their readings, their literacy practices to understand what can we learn from this space, from our history, to better write curriculum, instruction, to frame education. In the book, I present a four-layered model, which I call learning pursuits and not learning standards. I present a four-layered model for educating children better or young adults, uh, or adults, really. I mean, the model can be applied to so many different learning contexts. And so the model is teaching and learning around identity development, skill development. The third is intellectualism. And the fourth is criticality. And although I don't mention this as a fifth pursuit in the book explicitly, the fifth pursuit is joy. 
I encourage teachers and leaders to think about how are you cultivating those five different elements with each unit plan, with each lesson plan, with each learning experience. Could you tell us a little bit about the specifics of the goals and let's just take one and how you would like to see it applied in the classroom? Yeah. So if we just start with identity, identity matters students have to see themselves honored and reflected and validated in teaching and learning before we get to skills and standards like the common core standards. So identity is helping our young people to know who they are, who they're not, and who they desire to be, all the different facets and manifestations of themselves. Identity matters because it's like a refuge and a source of protection. When you know who you are, no one can tell you differently. Identity is something that builds confidence, self-esteem, and efficacy for our students. And they should not only be learning about themselves with each math, science, social studies, ELA, um, arts-based lesson, but they should be learning about the lives of others who are different than them. Because when you know the truth about people who are different than you, you are less inclined to hate. You are less inclined to judge, to stereotype. And so with every lesson plan, teachers are asking themselves, how will this instruction, this lesson plan, help my students to learn something about themselves or others? I wonder what question are you getting most from educators in response to your book and how are you helping them implement it in the classroom? The question I get most is either related to, do I have to teach all five of these pursuits in 45 minutes? And the answer to that is no. It depends on how you write the goals. Uh, So I have taught it in 45 minutes. I've also taught it across two weeks. So it depends on, I want teachers to think of themselves as designers and intellectuals and geniuses. If you think about yourself as a genius and as an artist, is how you write that design, that learning experience. And so I get that question a lot. I also get questions uh, regarding resistance especially with the the goal of criticality. Criticality is helping our students to understand equity, power, anti-racism. It's helping them to agitate in a world full of oppression and hurt and harm. And so the question I get very often is, what about if my colleagues or my administrators are resistant to uh, anti-racism and criticality? as I try to connect it to math, science, or whatever I'm teaching. And the ways in which I answer that question is to teach five learning pursuits in a, as opposed to one, like skills, is more intellectually rigorous and invigorating than just teaching skills or just teaching from worksheets or just teaching like from guided reading books. That's not intellectual. It's not invigorating. And we are teaching students to be more humane humans. This is about our humanity. This is about brothers and sisters who are black and brown, who are being killed, whose spirits are being murdered in classrooms, being killed in society for their skin color. 
I mean, we are in a state of oppression where we have a system that has greatly failed Black children. Now is not the time to get into your comfort zones. This is not about our egos, our feelings. This is about our students' lives. And I'm not here to sell you their humanity. I am here to do what's best for all of the children in the class. And that is a response. We have to be intellectual beings and be ready to defend excellent pedagogy. How did you get started in this work, Goldie? I was in graduate school and I was running these literacy collaboratives with Black girls, which were first supported by Scholastic, my very first one in, I think, 2009 or 2010. And around uh, not around that time, I also took a course that was taught by my advisor, Alfred Tatum. And I actually didn't want to take this course. It was a course where we had to historicize our research topics and connect them to the literacy development of black males. I was sort of at the end of my program. I didn't really want to take another course. I was a bit resistant And the class didn't make, uh, ironically, so I was sort of like, oh, this is kind of exciting that the class didn't make. But Alfred Tatum, being who he is, he taught the class anyway. Um, And so uh, it's funny, I was so resistant and tired because in that class is when I discovered and unearthed this part of our history, this part of American history, of Black history. And I found readings and scholarship around Black literary societies, which were book clubs and reading clubs and spaces for debating in 1828 and onward. And so from there, I just became lost and entrenched in the beautiful writings and literary works and newspapers of Black folks. And I just, I just, I've taught a class, a college course on Black literary societies. I've just been studying and reading this ever since that course in my graduate school. Could you tell us a little bit more about those literary societies? How did they function? How did they work? Yeah. So, you know, there were lots of organized efforts toward a better humanity and toward human and civil rights for Black folks and for all folks. They had anti-slavery societies, moral reform societies, benevolent societies, uh, and organizations. These were just, uh, if you study Black people, we have always organized and engaged in collectivism for, um, for, I guess, the future and the present to improve the social conditions For everyone, really, you know, Black people, I noticed, were never for the liberation of just Black people. They were for the liberation of all. And so around 1828, young Black men, both adolescent and young adult, started uh, what was called literary societies. And they focused on mathematics, science, uh, history, language, um, international uh, current events, all sorts of arts. They focus on everything we would like typically teach in schools today. And they had anywhere between 10 to over 100 people in membership. And they paid membership dues and they met very regularly in basements of homes and churches and classrooms, auditoriums. 
any space that they can get. And when they met, they cultivated their libraries, all their membership dues, except for like the regular expenses needed to run an organization, all their membership dues mostly went to books and libraries. That's where their starting point was. They would check out books. And if you returned a book, you had to give like a mini lecture of the book. They had constitutions and bylaws and preambles. And um, they had black women had their own societies and then black men and women had their collective societies together. And like I said, they would just read rich literature. They would write, they would debate, they would think, they would strategize, and they moved every sort of endeavor and pursuit for learning. They moved to action. And so they were very action oriented and abolitionist in their thinking and in their in their responses to inhumanity. They're just beautiful, beautiful part of our history that unfortunately, when teachers uh, are in university programs to be teachers, they don't learn about this part. Even in literacy programs, they don't learn about this part of history. They don't teach this in uh, social studies classes of youth, of K-12 youth. This is such an incredible part of our history that has given us the blueprint and the playbook for education today. How do you see a different way of teaching our history, much of which has been left out of the textbooks? Well, first, you got to understand why we have the situation that we have today. Everything can be explained through history. This has always, having Eurocentricity, having whiteness and everything, that was designed. It was organized, just like abolitionists was, were organizing. So were white folks historically who did not want Black people and Black histories and Black liberation expressed in the curriculum. There were books like A Measuring Rod for textbook selection in the 1850s by white men in the South who basically said, if it makes the the black person look subservient, that's the textbook we want in our public schools. So this has been designed for a long time. And then we have to think about capitalism. People profit off of the failure of black and brown children including people who put out the curriculum. Why haven't the research has been here for years? Why haven't we designed a curriculum that is culturally and social politically conscious? Because folks want to keep profiting, perhaps, because it's easier in some ways, it's, it's less rigorous. We think that teachers may be incapable of doing more. There's a lot of really important things that that need to be addressed around that. First, dynamic and very smart teachers are already doing that. They are either relinquishing or going beyond the curriculum that the district has adopted to do just that. But I argue that they shouldn't have to. First of all, if I'm if I'm a school district administrator and if I'm adopting a new mathematics, science, ELA, social studies curriculum, it better be culturally and historically responsive or I'm not paying the money to, you know, have this taught in my very diverse school district. That's the first thing we have to hold 
people who write curriculum more accountable, whether it's publishing companies or whether it's teams. I mean, some people write their own curriculum as a district. We need to write different curriculum. We need a gauge and a, 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 frame, a better framework for curriculum writing. I mean, that's why I wrote the book, because it offers a framework for curriculum writing. We also need, um, in a systemic level, we need to change the common core state standards and other state standards that are very similar to it, like in Georgia, where I am. These standards are grounded in the teaching of skills only. They are absent and they do not reflect uh, the histories, identities, and liberation of Black students. Black students, according to Nate data, are who we are struggling to get it right with the most when it comes to educational achievement. And so you have to start there. You have to start with the group that you have underserved or marginalized the most. And is it ethical to keep a set of standards that do not reflect the needs of students who have been uh, formally uh, enslaved, a group of people who've never gotten educational reparations? I don't think it's ethical. Reparations can look like better learning standards and better learning curriculum for black children. We have never reconciled that as a nation. One way we have to change, one way we reconcile and sort of remedy this is we have to write equity and conscious centered learning standards because that's what textbook companies will use to write their curriculum. That's what teachers will use because they're like, I have to follow the standards. And then we need number number three, after assessments and curriculum, we need better assessments. We need to treat assessments for what they should, how they should be used. No more high stakes, no more pressures, no more connected to people's salaries. It's just simply unfair how we have been using testing. And these tests are largely culturally biased. Number four, we need uh, different and more revised teacher evaluations and teacher recruitment teacher interview questions. We don't evaluate teachers on anything but academic success. And then we wonder why we don't have a social political consciousness in our schools because teachers are like, I'm not evaluated on it. Why would I teach it? And then if I can add a fifth one, it would be teacher education. I'm a teacher educator working in a university, working in a college of education. These programs need to teach more uh, scholars and theorists of color. I learned Vygotsky, Piaget, Maslow. I didn't learn a lot about black theorists. I didn't learn about any black theorists who actually work with black kids. So the programs for preparing teachers need to be culturally responsive. They need to be anti-racist and they need to be grounded in equity. If we begin to transform those five areas, I guarantee you we will have a better and more advanced state of education and we will certainly have higher achievement from all students. Do you have advice for parents as well, how they can apply these lessons you're imparting at home? 
Yeah, um, I have I have a whole set of a curriculum with read alouds that I have created with multicultural literature where parents will engage in the read aloud and their students, they ask questions around those five areas of identity and skills and intellect and criticality and joy. And it's something that they can do every night. It's something that they can do on a very regular basis just to really push those five areas as well for their child. That's great. Are there other resources for educators or parents who are starting on this journey that you want to recommend? In terms of online picture books, reading, read alouds, I love Sankofa read alouds right now. I love the Schomburg Center for Black Culture and research. They have so many digital archives that you can just read the images. You don't even have to bring it all in text. They have digital photograph archives and they have textual resources as well, but they're just really great places. Um, Any primary source document like African-American newspapers, I love to dive into because they're so multi-genre. I love the Brownies book, literary magazine, The whole collection is online for free. And even if you do Googles of Black scientists, Black women suffragists, uh, Black anything, you you would likely unearth something new that you have not learned before. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Goldie. This really has opened up a lot of possibilities for us as all of us do this work together. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be in conversation and share my thoughts about it because... It it gives me joy. It gives me both urgency and joy. And you want to cultivate that joy in children, in particular, Black children who have been denied that. Absolutely. All children deserve all those five pursuits. I don't want any child to leave K-12 without ever really experiencing authentic joy. I I want joy is something that we all deserve. Teachers deserve it too. Now... Here is anti-racism educator, Monique Melton. Hi, Monique. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. First, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got started in the work of anti-racism? Sure, thank you. I am a wife to my high school sweetheart. I am um, married to Black men. And I am a Black cisgender hetero woman. I'm also a mother to two beautiful Black children, school age children. And the work that I do looks like everything from anti-racism education, whether that be creating classes or courses or speaking and teaching with corporations, podcasts, hosts. I have my own podcast. And I also am a published author and I do um, public speaking. And the way that I got involved in my work is I really tapped into my own personal journey and healing from internalized anti-Blackness and really tapped into the spiritual calling that uh, my work has invited me to. And that initially looked like doing more writings um, on social media, on my blog, 
incorporating it more into working with clients. At the time, I was doing more business strategy and marketing with clients and not so much solely anti-racism educating. And the more I really tapped into my own journey, the more I really tapped into my voice and got clearer on the call that I am that, that I have and the work that I'm doing, I began to really feel it important and necessary to necessary to strictly focus on providing anti-racism learning experiences for people to understand what it is to actually do this work. What does it look like to pursue Black liberation? What does it look like to actually explore identifying and eliminating racism in every aspect of our society from the inside out? And um, it looked like really seeing my children and looking at them beyond just their mother who loves them and is willing to do absolutely anything for them, but realizing that they have a warm, wonderful home that they are in with people who love them. They're surrounded by people who love them, but they also live in a world. We live in a world that is incredibly violent to folks who look like us and in a multitude of ways. And I wanted to do whatever I could. And I still believe I want to do whatever I can to make that world better for them and to build upon the legacy that my ancestors built and have laid the way. And I see a very personal component in wanting something better for my own children, something better for myself, for my family. So it's very personal. It's very spiritual. It's very deeply connected into who I am. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do the work that I do the way that I do it. Could you tell us what you mean exactly by Black liberation, by that term? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different schools of thought when it comes to what does it look like to live in a a world better than what we have. And for me, it's acknowledging that we center the most marginalized voices the most marginalized people who live in who live in bodies and at the intersections of uh, marginalization in multiple ways. And we center and cater to their needs first and primary. And in doing that, we are able to meet the needs of the community at large. And so for me, if Black folks are able to live free, are able to live liberated, to walk the streets, and be able to breathe, to be able to build our families, to be able to have access to equitable health care, to be able to pursue multiple forms of education, um, to really be able to have a life that is thriving and not just merely trying to survive. If Black folks can do that, then all of us, all folks, people from different races, different identities, will be able to do that because that would mean that every system of oppression has been dismantled because every Black person, um, or not every Black person, but Black people experience every form of oppression in addition to racism. And so we center the most marginalized. So that's going to be Black people of size. That's going to be Black disabled people. That's going to be Black people experiencing poverty. That's going to be Black people who are LGBTQ and and, all, and the list goes on of people who experience marginalization because of their identity. Uh, that's going to mean centering them. And when we center those needs and really truly create sustainable strategies to alleviate the challenges and create 
opportunities for people to thrive, then all of us benefit from that. So to me, that is that is Black liberation, all of us being able to live freely and fully in our humanity. What do you say about the quote unquote unconscious bias that is pervasive among white people? I think one of the biggest things is that you have to get more curious with the world that you live in, the realities that you experience and ask why, why am I able to do this? Why am I not able to do this? What opportunities am I able to access? Why? Who's, who's not here and why? One of the things that happens with socialization is this idea that is we, to, we are to live as um, habitual creatures, to just go on autopilot and not be active participants in our lives. And that's certainly not helping anyone. But the truth is, yes, some of it absolutely happens without awareness and um, subconsciously, but a lot of it is willful ignorance. A lot of it is choosing to look away because you don't have to care or it doesn't impact your life. It doesn't impact your day to day. So it's asking questions as why am I able or what type of conditions Am I able to create my life that I'm able to live so comfortably amongst the suffering of others? And in those questions will come those answers that are easy to feel a lot of shame and guilt, which will derail you from actually taking action, but it'll reveal some truth and hopefully create a motivation within you to want to alleviate the realities that you begin to decide to acknowledge. What are some of the concerns that people are expressing to you since the reignition of the Black Lives Matter movement? We have a lot of people who are committed to the status quo. We have a lot of people who actually would prefer that things would go back to how they were before slavery was abolished in 1865. There are a lot of people who would, who would prefer to have the ways of the antebellum South. And so there's a lot of really hard but necessary questions that can begin the process, the necessary process of healing from internalized white supremacy, because white supremacy is dehumanizing to everyone. The way in which that dehumanization manifests and the outcomes are certainly different for those who are in the position of who are being who are positions of power and those who are being marginalized by those in positions of power but nonetheless it is dehumanizing to all and so that healing process is necessary that healing journey is necessary for all of us but the work is different it varies there's some there's absolutely variations the ancestral trauma that runs through my veins is very different than the ancestral trauma of being internalizing the anti-Blackness as a white person and that superiority that you believe and feel entitled to. That's a different type of trauma, but it's still trauma and it's still necessary to repair. And so that, that work really starts with yourself and then really being, again, honest with what are you willing to do? Are, we, are you really willing to do this work? Which is why um, when they talked about anti-racism, one of the classes that I offered was an introduction to anti-racism. What exactly is it? Because people talk about it, but they don't really understand it. And so what exactly is it? What is the goal? What, are, what is it about? What does it look like? 
And I did a crash course and it's still available on my site. People can learn so much from it. But one of the things is understanding that it's about redistributing power, redistributing resources. And the truth of the matter is, in a capitalist country that favors profit over people, the idea of there being a commitment to the collective care sounds absurd. But when we're talking about repairing the harm and the violence of white supremacy and how it has destroyed lives, you have to care about people beyond yourself. That is a commitment to community. That is a commitment to care of those who don't just live within your four walls or people who you can touch and reach. So I think that it really has a lot to do with connecting with yourself as a human being and the multiple ways in which you have disconnected from your own humanity so that you can begin to see the humanity in me. I can't convince you to see me as a human being, nor will I ever try. But if you don't see me as such, you certainly won't treat me as such. And that is your responsibility. What a pleasure to talk with you, Monique. I I really appreciate your generosity. Thank you so much. My great thanks again to Monique Melton and Dr. Goldie Mohammed for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about their anti-racism work, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.